and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts Live. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. Today we are recording live from the Helsinki Security Forum in beautiful Helsinki, Finland. And Jim and I have the incredible privilege to be sitting here with three very special guests. Three of the leading presidential candidates in the Finnish presidential elections scheduled for January of next year. Heading into the elections, the spotlight remains on Finnish foreign policy, an area where the Finnish head of state wields considerable influence. And of course, the issue at the forefront of Finland's foreign policy is Russia and the nature of Helsinki's future relationship with its neighbor. Following Russia's invasion of Ukraine in 2022, Helsinki broke from its decades-long policy of formal military non-alignment by applying for and receiving membership in NATO. Outgoing President Nenisto had a crucial role in executing this monumental shift, helping set Finland down a new path, but considerable questions and issues remain. For example, what kind of NATO member will Finland be? Will Finland be prepared to think strategically outside the country's borders and adapt its forces and capabilities to the alliance's needs? What should Helsinki's relationship with Russia look like in the future, and what must be done to keep Finns safe? These are some of the questions that Finns will be thinking about when they head to the polls in January, and that Helsinki's allies will be eager to gauge and understand. We're therefore very excited to hear the thoughts and views of the three candidates here with us today. First, we have Dr. Mika Atola, who is running as an independent candidate in the 2024 election. He is on leave of absence from his position as the director of the Finnish Institute of International Affairs. Welcome, Mika. Thank you. We're also pleased to be joined by Pekka Havisto, who is a member of the Green Party. He's currently in the Finnish parliament and previously served as the, as the Finnish Minister of Foreign Affairs from 2019 to 2023. Welcome, Pekka. Thank you. And finally, we're joined by Alex Stube, who is running as the National Coalition candidate. He has served as Prime Minister, Finance Minister, Foreign Minister, and Trade and Europe Minister of Finland, and he was also a member of the European Parliament from 2004 to 2008. So to kick things off, I want to actually start looking backward with a little bit of a reflective question. We'll get to the forward-looking stuff in a minute. But the invasion was such a monumental shift in the United States and in Europe. And I want to hear from each of you how you think Russia's invasion of Ukraine has impacted Finland. And I don't just mean that Finland has then moved forward with membership in NATO, but you're, if you're thinking about the impact on the psyche of the country, you know, what does it mean, what has it meant for Finns, and what has been the impact here uh, in the country? Well, if I may start, thank you, Andrea. Um, the key for the seismic shift in Finland uh, was remembering who we are and where we are located and finding the courage as well to seek out the NATO membership path. It became all too clear to the Finns that what, is, what was happening when the Ukrainians actually were resisting in every town and in every village. That sparked memories in, in Finland, who we are, what is our historical experience, and the solidity of the Ukrainian national identity. That was the counterforce, actually, that was behind the power to stop the Russian onslaught. And uh, solidifying the Finnish national identity. We are not reluctant NATO members, although it took some decades to seek out the direct path to NATO. We are not reluctant. We always usually take the most Western position available to Finland. And we have the courage to do that. Now we need to have the plan how to gear the society, security of supply, military and civilian one, how to shape up the economy, how to guard the different dimensions of Finland, Lapland. Think about the strategic location. Eastern Finland. Those regions that are clearly so strategically very important, they need to be fit and serve the purpose. And we need to have the plan. And I don't think that currently we have the plan. And that's why I'm running. We're going to get to the plan. But 
additional thoughts. Yeah, sure. I think for our international friends, you need to understand that since the 1300s, we've been in more or less 40 skirmishes or wars with Russia. So for us, the enemy always came from the east. And I think what was brought forward on the 24th of February 2022 was an understanding that there was a tectonic shift in our security political situation. It had ramifications on a global level, it had ramifications on a European level, and certainly uh, on a Finnish level as well. And in many ways, I think it brought forward this sort of duality of Finnish foreign security policy that on one hand, we believe in idealism, and on the other hand, we're very realistic. For us, idealism meant that we have this 1,340-kilometer border with Russia, and we want to trade. We want to work with them. But realism meant that we have one of the largest militaries in Europe. I mean, we don't have 900,000 men in reserve or 280,000 that we can mobilize in wartime or uh, 62 F-18s or 64 F-35s because we're worried about Stockholm, right? Uh, so the starting point is that. Final point on this, I, I think Finns are really good at shifting foreign and security policy when need be, mm -hmm. when there are these lynchpins in history. In 1809, we maximized our autonomy under the Russian Empire. In 1917, we took a risk by declaring independence. In 1944, we reluctantly accepted Stalin's peace. And of course, in 1991, when the Soviet Union collapsed, we immediately made a move to the West and joined the European Union. And for me, this is a long sequence of our history, and now we are basically where we belong, in other words, uh, in the North Atlantic Treaty Alliance. You, Andrea, ask what happened to our psyche uh, in yeah. February 22. And I think first issue to understand is that we are very security-oriented people as Finns. When we look uh, developments after the Second World War, of course, we were hosting the 1975 European Security Conference, which guaranteed for years a certain security in Europe. But at the same time, we were building bomb shelters here. We were uh, ordering first Hornets and then F-35s, actually prior to this uh, conflict. We have been maintaining our conscription army system, which is uh, different from many European countries. So we have been preparing for the first time. I a little bit disagree with Mika on, on this, that do we have a plan? Yes, we have had a plan, actually, agree, yeah. even prior to this conflict. And of course, now it's time to renew the plan. When, when we see the world news, like uh, uh, Belarus pushing people over the border of uh, Poland or Baltic states, or Russia attacking uh, Ukraine, our first question is, what if this happens to us? And then are we prepared for this? And then our second question is that, how do we show, to show the solidarity to those victims of this Russian aggression? And this is also something that we mobilized in the government immediately after the 22nd of uh, February. Uh, first, looking, how can we help Ukraine? And second, looking, how can we ensure our own security? And that started our NATO process. Yeah, I'm going to let you respond, but I also want to layer on one more question because you talked about the threat coming from the east. And we've been talking about this in some of our discussions since we've been here in Helsinki, which is what do Finns understand about the Russian threat that you think others in NATO, uh, perhaps southern members or even in the United States, don't understand? But you f feel free to respond first, but I'd yes, get your thoughts on that as well. There was somewhat of a disagreement. Thank you, Becca, for, for that. Uh, <laughs> so what actually happened, and this was something that I stated last year uh, here at the Helsinki Security Conference. By the way, it's good to be back. Uh, the extended FIA family is present, so the empathy, the warm feelings are here. Um, well, what we failed, few generations of European politicians failed in carrying out the promise of never again. How did that failure happen? Did we have a plan, or did we give green light to Russia to decree by managing, trying to manage, and not having a strategic understanding what Russia has become? That was a failure. And now we have to devise a new plan where we don't think that Russia somehow is uh, thinking about different dialogical approaches. Russia is what it is. It is a street fighter. And uh, therefore, we need to base our Russia policies on a clear understanding of deterrence. And that needs to be built up. And the society needs to follow up 
with the plan, and I hope that these presidential uh, debates are going to be about what is the plan. If we have it, yes, that's a great mm. thing. But should we at least try to figure out what went wrong and then not to make the same mistakes again in the, in the future? If it looks like Russia is somehow approaching a situation where it would like to negotiate something, remember what Russia is. Negotiations are only a different way of trying to realize what it has now done. It is not normalizing, it is opposite of that. It is expansive political system based on fascist uh, understanding of what internal and domestic uh, elements are and the enemies are seen within and also outside of Russia. Yeah, anything you want to add to it? Because really, Finns really are always held yeah. up as having, like, you know, given your history, a having the pulse on what's happening in the Kremlin. And so are there things that you think that we in Washington and others in different parts of the alliance fail to understand about the Russia threat? Well, I'd, I'd say yes and no. I mean, I kind of <laughs> agree with both Mika and Pekka. To a certain extent, we need to go back to the past and see what we got wrong. And I think what we got wrong was that we believed that in the Russian case, interdependence, trade, energy cooperation, information cooperation would lead to the westernification of Russia. It didn't happen. We, did, we, we made a mistake in 2008, letting it go through after the war, of Georgia, war in Georgia, which I mediated as chairman of the OSCE. We did a mistake in 2014 by not being tough enough when Russia once again annexed territory from an independent and sovereign state. And I think the tipping point, of course, was 2022. And now we have to live, it, live with it. But where I disagree is I do think we have a plan. And the plan is very clear. The starting point is that we are now looking at a fairly permanently divided Europe, whereby you have Russia and Belarus isolated from the rest of Europe. And the plan now is to integrate Europe in one way or another, both the structures of the European Union and to NATO, starting from Georgia, Ukraine, Moldova, through to the Western Balkans and even the British Isles. And I think this is a fundamental understanding and a plan that all of us have because we do understand that the world order and European uh, security change. Final point, what do Americans and others perhaps don't see with Russia? Well, I think the starting point is you need to look at Russia as an imperialist, as a revisionist and an aggressive state. And when you do that, and when you take that starting point, you understand that the likes of Putin understand one language only, and that is the language of power. Any kind of cooperation or any kind of lenience or adaptation with Russia, I think, doesn't work, and we've now seen that. You can weigh in, and if you want to also, is it, you know, there's also a debate, is, is this just Putin or is it Russia? And I don't know if you want to add. In the, in the past, we had a lot of Kremlologists also here in Finland, <laughs> and they explained from the photographs and all the information who is who in Kremlin, who will be the next in Kremlin. So, and I'm wondering, where are all the Kremlologists now? <laughs> because nobody is telling us what was Prigozhin's and Putin's relationship, what is Shoigu's role vis-a-vis -vis Putin. We are, we are in the dark, or we are in a dark cloud, and, and that's a problem. It's much more unstable. Russia is much more unstable, which we have used to. First, I have to say that when we talk about Russia, we have to look 100 years backwards and 100 years towards the future. When we look the backwards, it's uh, chart time turning to Lenin and Stalin, then to Rutschev, then to Brezhnev, stagnation time, then Gorbachev, Yeltsin, then Putin. It has been uh, yep. different waves that we have been living. On the good times, we have, for example, worked for the Baltic Sea, cleaning up the wastewaters of uh, St. Petersburg, extremely successful project that started during the 90s. Without that, we would have a much worse situation at the Baltic Sea. We were able to do cooperation, even on the Arctic issues and so forth. My theory is that whenever there is this kind of relationship that turns more to the west from Russia's side, we have to use those moments. And whenever there's the Russian imperialistic tendencies pushing back, we have to also push back. And I, I think the former President Koivisto wrote an excellent book in 2001 about the Russia's idea, that Russia's idea actually is to conquer area and our, 
idea is to survive. Yeah. I hope our ideas even to flourish here in Finland, have a positive future. But, but it's, it's very Im important that we see the different tendencies in Russia. And we actually, mm -hmm. when we did the uh, scenarios for Russia, we always, al always had this darkest scenario there at the table. Of course, then we were comparing likelihoods of different scenarios. And of course, we can also pose ourselves a question, did we influence as much as we could have done to have a better scenario for Russia? Yes, we reacted to Navalny. Yes, we reacted to Crimea. Where are our reactions right and was the scale right? That's something that we have to think. Yeah. I just reread, actually, Mauno Koivisto's book, uh, The Idea of Russia, and I got in touch uh, with one of the journalists at the time, Raivio, who was uh, editing it. And it's actually coming out in English. And I, I like the book a lot as well, especially the mid part. But there's one fundamental disagreement that I have, and that is the last sentence or paragraph with the book, which basically says, come hell or high water, we have a good neighbor in Russia. Mm -hmm. And of course, that conclusion didn't work out. I want to take issue just with one thing. You asked, how, you know, is it Putin's war or is it Russia's war? This is Putin's war, but we should have no illusion. He is backed up by the Russian economic elite and he's backed up by the Russian political elite. Those who do not back him up, they have left the country. They all know that they are in a sinking submarine. And if you open the la latch, you get the Prigozhin treatment. The rest of them understand that this is a downward spiral. So we shouldn't think that Putin does not have the support of the general Russian uh, public uh, in this war, he does. Maybe, maybe to just to add on, on the Russian opinions, uh, it's true that uh, those who are vocal are outside of the country, like Garry Kasparov and others. But despite of that, there has been voices even inside Russia. Uh, Alla Pugacheva's <laughs> criticism towards Putin or uh, uh, rock band uh, uh, whose lyrics are opposing what's going on. And these are extremely brave people who are, who are reacting to the situation. And of course, we have to find ways and means to support these people. Then we have the independent Russian media currently working outside of the country and so yeah. forth. This is extremely important for the younger generation of Russians. And we have to help also the information to flow yeah. as much as we can to Russia. Yeah. Well, I have to say that uh, my image of, of Russia and its future is a little bit bleaker. It's not a sinking submarine, actually. I think Russia has managed to put out somewhat working war economy. They have support from countries like North Korea and Iran. Uh, China is economically supporting Russia. The sanctions are leaking. So Russia actually has managed to yeah. do something that is uh, not noted by, by experts who sometimes are predicting overly confident, uh, co uh, with a great confidence that Russia is a sinking submarine. It's not going to sink, and that's the danger of it. Um, when uh, Putin was last summer in St. Petersburg, that is very close by to Helsinki, he was comparing himself to Peter the Great, great modernizer of Russia, westernizer of Russia. But remember what happened during his time in Finland. So uh, the models that we are building, the historical uh, notes that we are taking, should also pay attention to Russia as a semi-permanent threat. Yep. It is threat right now for Finland. It is in 10 years even greater threat. So that's where the plan, yep. the question of the plan comes in. And I think West is lacking the plan. We are always pronouncing that Ukraine must not lose. Ukraine must win. But what are the details of that? How our support contributes to some kind of outcome, just peace, as we say, return of the Ukrainian territories, going after the war criminals? Do our means actually somehow lead into that outcome? And I think that we are lacking in the strategic thinking. And the Russian strategic thinking, unfortunately, it is more limited, it is a little bit irrational, but they have a purpose. They are not managing things. They are not coordinating arms shipments into, into Ukraine. They are, have a limited rationality, but they have a goal, they have a purpose. And uh, if the war is 
Putin's war, is it Russia's war, or, or Russians' war? I think, to a degree, that question is pointless. It is autocratic, totalitarian system. Uh, placing guilt on the Russians is misplacing the situation and, and, and giving okay. a too hopeful of an image of, of what is happening. There's no cleavages. It is a totalitarian machine, and it's becoming increasingly so. I think there is a difference that is our goal to defend Ukraine or if our goal is to take down Russia. And uh, I think it's important that we do our utmost now to help Ukraine. Yeah. But uh, is there a plan? Uh, well, it, it, the plan is developing as we go. But I have to say that it, has, it was extremely difficult when sitting with the European foreign ministers in the, in the council deciding how much armed material we can uh, give to Ukraine in the circumstances where we also have our own security concerns. You referred to the one, more than 1,300 kilometer common border. Whenever we give a donation to Ukraine, we don't think that we can be an empty area here and then somebody would jump and save us. We have to take care of our own defense, national defense in all kinds of circumstances. And we know that the logic of the war can bring many surprises that's usually the logic of the war, and you have to be ready yeah. for those surprises. And, and actually, at the same time, when we are doing our utmost to helping Ukraine, and we can theoretically discuss what the victory means and what the victory includes and so forth, we have to take care of our own country. And that's, that's something that we are responsible for our own citizens. And I think in foreign security policy, language matters, and there are a lot of diplomats here. You know that language matters. If our message from here is that the West doesn't have a plan against Russia, I think that plays straight into the hands of Putin. So all we need to do is to read the European Union's strategic compass or read the NATO, NATO's latest uh, strategy or basically look at what we're doing together with our alliance. That is one of the best deterrents that we can have against Russia. I think we have a clear plan. I think we have a clear vision. I think we have a clear strategy. And I am just amazed at how unified Europe and the West became in the face of a Russian serious threat. Look. Putin made Ukraine European. Putin unified the European Union. Putin revitalized the transatlantic partnership. Putin rejuvenated NATO. And on top of that, the icing on the cake is Finnish and Swedish NATO membership. For me, that is a plan. So you made the great point, because I, and I want to get to the plan, and I'm going to turn it to Jim to ask about parts of the plan, but you made the great point of um, Russia's resilience in the face of the pressure that it's faced, and our bumper sticker has always been Russia's down, but it's not out, and it will be a persistent challenge. So with that, Jim. Well, actually, I'm going to surprise you, Andrea. Okay. <laughs> I, uh, uh, I think this has been a great discussion on Russia. It's just been excellent. But you're running for president, uh, and you're coming in with uh, a lot of power on foreign policy, so, and it's not just Russia, uh, although we could talk about Russia for a couple of hours. Uh, but I want to ask you, as you, if you're elected and you come into to office, do you have foreign policy priorities already in mind that you want to try to, to take Finland in terms of Finnish foreign policy? Not just with Russia, but you know, Finland is now in, in NATO. Finland is playing on a much larger uh, stage than in the past when you were militarily non-aligned. So when I think about your presidency, I, it's interesting what other priorities you might have as far as Finland's role in Europe. Uh, do you have priorities for that? or globally? Do you want to take Finland into a broader place than it's been in the past in terms of foreign policy? What are your priorities? I, I think you addressed a very important topic because, the, of course, Finland has always been based its uh, foreign policy on the rules-based world and rules-based organization. Uh, we have, as mentioned, we will be chairing the OSC 2025. We have to discuss what is the future European security architecture. Actually, that's one of the tasks that is at the table of the new president for the, from the first day. What is the new structure of European security when the old structure didn't function and it uh, didn't uh, bring the results? Of course, we have been always and will be an active member of European Union. Now the European enlargement is also a geopolitical issue. When we speak about the Balkans and when we see the competition situation, both actually with Russia and China, we have to uh, take up, make our minds on the enlargement. I'm, I'm supportive to that. Then as a NATO member, we, we are not on, only a listener in the room. I have to say that as a first NATO 
foreign minister meeting in Oslo in, in May, which I participated as, as a new member of NATO, the first question to us is, what about Russia? What do you propose? What's your take on Russia's development and so forth? Everybody thinks that we have the intelligence, we have the capacity to analyze, we have the researchers and so forth, and we have to take that role of also in the future, uh, both in the European Union table and in the NATO table. And then I would take this wider global perspective. When we look, for example, what's happening in Sahel and in the Northern Africa, what's happening in the Middle East, we have the same geopolitical competition on ongoing both Russia and China active there, and their European Union has to play a more active role, of course, in Latin America as, as well. And, and this global role is something that we have to support, and of course, we already have promised the NATO table that we look things from the 360 degrees, whether it's Mediterranean security, Eastern European security, our relationship, uh, transatlantic relationship, and so forth. And the big issue we have not yet touched, of course, is what's happening 24 elections in US <laughs> and how it's and influences. We can talk about that. Mm -hmm. Andrea is an expert <laughs> on that. So. And I, I have only one remark on that. I had an experience of uh, being foreign minister during the Trump period. Pompeo was my counterpart. And yes, it was extremely difficult to speak about the climate change. It was extremely difficult to speak about the environmental issues. But it was possible to, to discuss about the European security, about the Middle East, about the Northern Africa. So I'm not expecting major changes. And whoever will be the president of the United States, we have to cooperate with that president. Well, I have to say, and it goes to the plan as well. Seeing something, something promising, of course, is clear when you are talking about Russia as a threat. What are the promises? What is the vision for the future? And I can see an arts emerging from the Arctic to the Black Sea when Ukraine finally becomes fully recognized normal member of the Western community, integrated into the European Union and also into NATO. That is a good fortification when it comes to Russian expansion. And that's something that we should aim at. And there you have a strategic goal. When I was referring to lack of strategy, FIA did a great study on, on Finland's participation in the Afghanistan war over the 20 years. And the conclusions referred to lack of Western strategic understanding of the situation. Now we need to have that. And of course, US is a key part of that equation. It is the lone superpower still, militarily speaking. So it matters who is president of US. So we need to have an understanding also on US uh, developments. And I have been a keen supporter of US studies uh, whenever working in different angles. US is key. As long as it remains a democracy, <laughs> uh, it is the key. Yeah. And I don't think that uh, the longest running democracy in the world uh, is somehow going to be crushed by Trump. And Trump's foreign policy was largely within the mainstream of US foreign policy. He increased support for Eastern European allies. He was concentrating on uh, defense. So he, he did what he could, uh, even though his way of speaking is somewhat uh, <laughs> difficult to understand. Uh, but as a politician, he manages somehow to captivate the yeah. attention. Yeah, yeah. Even with criminal uh, charges, he yeah. is the yeah. man of the hour, yeah. always. So he, he has talent when it comes to politics. Uh, uh, but stability is, of course, appreciated, appreciated by uh, smaller yeah. states because war is something that touches smaller states much more yeah. than the bigger ships that are yeah. sailing in, a, in a more tranquil waters. So we need to have understanding of the promises of the situation. Ukraine is resisting. It's putting up a fight. When I visited Kiev last May, I could see stress in their eyes. The same people I was teaching several years ago. But I could also see a great sense of determination. They have strategic vision, something that we should learn from them. War requires an antidote, and I don't know if we still have it. We have the solidarity, we have the democratic moment, uh, but do we have the stamina 
in absence of a clear strategic endpoint. I want so you to answer, but I want to come back to the yeah. solidarity question after, yeah. but first. Yeah, no, yeah. I mean, so before going to Trump and the rest of it, I, I think your original question was... We don't have to go to Trump. No, no, no I, I would I'm, rather I'm happy, not. I'm happy to <laughs> stay out of it as well. But I, I, think, I think the original question was about what are the ramifications of a changing world order for the security situation here in Europe. And your and priorities. Priorities, you exactly. In. So in order, in order to give my priorities, what you need first to have is a diagnosis of what's going on. And I, I do think that this is the 1918, 1945, or 1989 moment in international relations and in world politics, when there is a tectonic shift. We got it wrong after World War I, we got it more or less right after World War II, and I think we were a little bit lazy uh, after the end of the Cold War, when most of us, including myself, believed in the end of history. Now, the way in which I see the order changing uh, is three power not blocks, but centers. The global West, which is roughly 50 states, it's trying to preserve the liberal world order. Why? Because we created it in the post-World War II era. The global East, roughly 25 countries, led by China, partially Russia, and Iran, they want to break it. China does it in a strategic manner by creating financial dependencies. It's the biggest creditor of 120 countries in the world by creating infrastructural dependencies and without taking the moral high ground, as we often do in Europe. All they're asking for is a support for a one-China policy, uh, a support on not meddling with Taiwan, and perhaps voting with them in the UN at times. The one that's going to be the key here is a broad perspective, the global south. Roughly 125 countries, ranging from India in Asia to Saudi Arabia in the Middle East to South Africa, uh, and Nigeria in Africa, and then, of course, Brazil uh, in uh, Latin America. They are the ones who are going to, they don't want to necessarily choose sides, but they're going to look the direction in which we go. And here's where I come to my analysis. The analysis is that we will see increased regionalization, which is not necessarily a bad thing for Europe, to be honest. But at the same time, we will see unholy global alliances which cut across continents. So you see BRICS expanding suddenly to uh, 11 states. They have absolutely no uh, value-based glue. It's purely transactional. You see the Quad. Uh, you see AUKUS. You see G20 plus one. You see G7. So we're going more and more towards a world which looks quite like patchwork, almost like a la carte. And this is the world to which the next president of Finland enters. And what he or she will have to do is to understand that, yes, for our security, we have a triple lock, which is our independent defense, which Mika was talking about, which is the European Union and NATO, and which is our DCA agreement with the US. But that is not enough. What we need is a president who is able to navigate in a new world order, which will take roughly 10 years to settle, which means also bilateral relations with, say, London, Washington, New Delhi, uh, Beijing, Pretoria, uh, etc. Uh, so I think we'll go with security first. That's the bottom line. But we have to understand that the world that, for instance, I grew up in doesn't exist anymore. It's much colder, it's much harsher, and it's much more realist school than what it used to be. Uh, just, uh, Alex, I agree with you that the world order might be changing and, and, and your bold prognosis on the new world order that needs to be navigated. Unfortunately, the world orders usually do not change without series of conflicts and wars. So if you are prognosticating that, then we are uh, actually entering into very gloomy times. So it doesn't change peacefully and yeah. harmoniously. It changes through times of friction. Uh, that's, that is the lesson from world history, and, and we need to be prepared for that. So what are the clear signs of the emerging challenge to the present time world order? And I see China as, as the clearest of, uh, of rivals to US. Uh, Russia is not, but Russia started something that might be serving yeah. China in the long run. And uh, that emerging bipolar world order that might result from this doesn't emerge without yeah. pain. Yeah. Can, I, can I just... Oh, no, go ahead. Yeah, if, Sorry. if you want to see some light in the tunnel, yeah. actually, you can still, and I uh, agree that we have a, a 
those countries who are sitting on the fence and looking what's going to happen or who makes the best offer and so forth. But we have been criticizing a lot of the UN Security Council. Actually, UN Secretary General and the Security Council is made for the world peace, and they cannot now commit their important task because of these vetoes and so forth. But we have seen an alternative, actually, in the UN General Assembly. More than 140 countries voting to condemn Russia's attack, voting to condemn the occupation or, or, or uh, uh, the, the annexation of the four territories to, to Russia and, and so forth. And we have seen, actually, a little bit surprising uh, game around this uh, uh, BRICS meeting in South Africa on the ICC issue. We are great supporters of the ICC, and suddenly South Africa made a decision that Putin is not allowed to come to South Africa because of the, the re their respect to the ICC. I, I think we are still, even if the rules-based uh, world is shaking, there are some issues that where it's still working. And I'm, I'm thinking that our task it doesn't happen immediately, is to build the new security order, of course, when the Russia-Ukraine issue is solved. And at the moment, the only thing is to continue to support Ukraine in its brave fight, and then we know that something will happen. Some, somebody will get tired, or some changes will happen in Russia, hopefully, and that will change the game, and, and uh, these kind of agreements come possible again. Can I disagree with the both of you a little bit? Because we, we need to. So the, the first one is, Mick, I think in your analysis, about the necessity of conflict or a world war in order to change the order holds true in 1914 to 1918. It holds true in 1939 to 1945, but it did not hold true in 1989. Uh, because well, that's when, that's when basically it was, it was an ideological victory for the liberal <laughs> world order, for democracy, for market economy, and for globalization. So in my mind, you need a war to kill an ism. So imperialism died in 1914, fascism died in 1939, communism died in 1989. Now what I don't want is for liberalism to die as a consequence of uh, 2022. Where I take issue a little bit with Pekka is this sort of slightly Western illusion that the rest of the world is supporting the West and not Russia on this. I don't think that is true. We took great joy in the 141 votes early on in the UN, but we didn't notice that 35 abstain, and there are over half of the population. And in any case, a UN vote is nice, but what really matters is using modern weapons, which is sanctions. And there are only 40 countries in the world, roughly speaking, which have sanctioned Russia. Zero countries in Africa, zero countries in Latin America, and three countries in Asia. So the world is not supporting the West on this. There are a plethora of reasons for that. So I do believe in the multilateral world order. I do believe in the rules-based world order. But we have to prepare for a world where that will not exist in the format that we're used to. I have on, on this issue, I have to say that I was in Manama uh, conference where we discussed about the global peace and also peace in Ukraine and peace in the Middle East and, and so forth. And actually, some Arab countries, some African countries, criticized exactly the West for the reason that we we go and support countries like Ukraine, but we don't care about the other countries. And they're right, yeah? Yes, they might be in some cases right, but then I reminded them. I was a parliamentarian in 1990. Autumn in Helsinki, when the delegation from Kuwait came and told us that their country has been occupied by Saddam Hussein. And they asked help based on the UN Charter, Article 51. They have the right to defend themselves. They have the right to ask help until the UN Security Council solves the problem. And a group of countries went and helped Kuwait against the Saddam Hussein occupation. Of course, the rest is also complex history. We, we know what happened. But the beginning of that was actually the same reaction from the international community, what we are now asking for Ukraine. I want to stay on the issue of Ukraine. You all have talked about unprecedented solidarity, and that has certainly been the case. Even setting the United States aside for a second, there are some concerning little signs in Europe. Uh, you have the Slovak elections that are coming up. There have been some concerning statements by the Polish government. I mean, a, a lot of anxiety in Berlin about their ability to sustain support. How worried are you about Europe's ability to remain united in support of Ukraine and the second part of the question is, what does the alliance need to do in order to position Ukraine to win? What, what, what aren't we doing? I mean, we're, we're watching that the counteroffensive hasn't made as much progress. What do we need to do in order to uh, position Ukraine to be successful? 
Well, clearly, what we need to understand to start with is that uh, this is just one episode. Ukraine is resisting, Russia is on the offensive, it's still in Ukraine. And clearly, it's an episode in a wider fight that Russia is uh, choosing to have. And that's understanding it's not in a vacuum, the war. It touches us, us in the future, most certainly. Russia has a plan, and that's the kind of a starting point. And that should motivate us much more than just uh, uh, fighting a war in Ukraine. Unfortunately, there is quite a lot of uh, tiredness in European societies, and economically, it's putting a strain. And to a degree, we are lazy. We are always looking for somebody else to, to take care of the issue, and usually the Americans are the chosen ones. But perhaps on the long run, we cannot do that anymore. So we have to be prepared for the war not ending in a peace. Yeah. It's going to end in a conflict that is wider, it's bubbling there, and it's easily, it, it expands. And Russia, if, it, uh, if Ukraine somehow allows Russia to release some of the uh, Russian troops from the front, the half of a million, of Russian troops there, if the conflict becomes, the war becomes a frozen conflict. That scenario worries me quite a lot. It worries me because Russia hasn't changed its approach. It sees this as one episode. It's going badly, yes, I know. But remember that with the Western weapons, Ukraine, we believed, could win it easily. It did not very easily win the situation. I hope before the end of the year, Ukraine is reaching the Black Sea uh, coast. But it's not certain. And part of that uncertainty has to do with our lack of understanding the strategic importance of what is happening in Ukraine. And that worries me quite a lot. Are you worried about yeah. sustained support in, in, in Europe? Yeah, that's a good question. You had two questions, actually. First, uh, how Europe keeps together. I have to say that I agree with Alex that I was very proud of the European decisions, yeah. very early decisions. And I, I, I felt that Europe somehow found its soul. You were actually, part of it, huh? And yes, and yeah. found its uh, identity and found its task to support Ukraine at that moment. Then, of course, there were very complex discussions. Let's say with Hungary, it's, it was more related to our NATO membership and so forth. And I was sitting with the Minister Peter Siartovia, we, we get along very well, you know, when we are only two of us in the room. And uh, I asked uh, almost what is the problem and, and so forth. And a lot of uh, complaints and a lot of uh, issues domestically in Ukraine, Hungary and also issues that we have, we have been dealing wrongly with, with them and so forth. But then we ended actually to 1956. And I told Peter Siarto, do you know that at the Finnish streets we had a collection for resistance movement of Hungary, 1956, Red Cross of Finland organized, you know, collection and, and support for solidarity to the Hungarians who resisted Russia. And he was, he didn't know that. And I said, you have to go to the news and look what Finns and others did for Hungary that time. And then he said, yes, but the West betrayed us. And that's why we are bitter. West didn't do what they promised 1956. And, and somehow it was very interesting debate. And then the other issue, of course, was the Hungarian treatment of Hungarian minorities in Ukraine and so forth. I took as, as an example our Swedish-speaking people's population and, and their rights and so forth. And of course, if you join one day European Union, the linguistical rights will be certainly guaranteed and so forth. So these are the discussions we have to have. And I, I don't think that this, uh, this is the end of the European solidarity, what we see now with uh, Poland. Poland elections are coming. I think this is a sensitive moment, but, but the solidarity remains there. And then you had another question. What do we do? What do we do? And I, I think there think that, uh, uh, well, Mika is reflecting the situation that we are not doing enough. But I have to say that the moment when, as a foreign minister, I called to my, my colleagues to Sweden, and to Norway, asking that can we cooperate and, and synchronize our military aid to Ukraine, February 2022. The first reaction from Sweden was, we have been helping last time somebody militarily, Finland, autumn 39. But we are now considering doing the same as you are doing. And I think, I think this kind of feeling that yes, we do it. And yes, we mobilize military support. And this was the new spirit of Europe, and I, I'm very proud of that. And, and that means that this, this support will remain. 
And then comes the issue of the US elections and others, because we know that if it's 30% what Europe is giving, it's maybe 70% what US is giving. And of course, if US is out of that game, then we have a totally new situation. Yeah. And that's one of the biggest risks. Yeah. Yeah. If I can begin Please. just by giving personal credit to the work that Becca did uh, around the war, not only in coordinating among his colleagues uh, the assistance that we gave to Ukraine, but also navigating the debate here in Finland, which I think Mika did extremely well as well. Uh, but the key here was that he also helped us on the pathway towards NATO. So what the previous government did, prime minister, foreign minister, defense minister, and then president, I think worked out uh, very well for us. Now, you asked, what can we do to help Ukraine? I can only quote Jens Stoltenberg on this. Unfortunately, the only pathway to peace comes through the battlefield. And that basically needs that we need to arm Ukraine to the teeth. This sounds very brutal, it sounds very hard, but remember, the only thing that Putin understands is power. So I think the pathway towards so some kind of a solution comes through the battlefield. Second point, war fatigue. I was actually worried about it already in the spring of 2022, because then there was talk about inflation, food price, energy price, and the rest of it. But every time we were moving towards some kind of a moment of war fatigue, Putin would bomb a hospital, a theater, a school, and then that would turn, or then Bucha, that would turn public opinion around. Now, there are some indications. The U.S. senators, uh, led by J.D. Vance, signing a letter saying we shouldn't you know, finance or arm Ukraine uh, anymore. Uh, we're seeing some movement before the Polish elections. Yeah. Trust me, elections can change yeah. opinion as yeah. well after that. Uh, and then, of course, uh, Slovakia. But I, I still don't see fundamental war fatigue. Final point, a lot of people asked, you know, what's the way out of this? And, you know, in the presence of the Ukrainian ambassador, I'm very careful to what I'm going to say. But I do believe, I do believe that is in the hands of President Zelensky and Ukraine. And I would think that at a minimum, Zelensky needs four things. Number one, he needs territory. That for Zelensky is what we would call the Karelia question. And he's the only person together with his cabinet and the government that can decide that. Second one is he needs security guarantees. That could be and is bilateral coming from allies, the US among others. And linked to that, of course, a pathway towards EU membership and a pathway towards NATO membership. Number three, he needs justice. We need Russian war criminals indicted in international criminal, war criminal courts in The Hague and elsewhere. And fourth, he will need reconstruction. If he gets these four things and he feels that his objectives have been achieved, then we will have found a solution. Because I don't think we should only be giving a vision of, mis uh, of misery. There is such a thing as peace mediation, and a day for that will come. I think Jim is going to, he always has a very thought-provoking final question. But before we do that, all, are all three of you in support of Ukraine in NATO? Yes. Well, yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Okay. And the EU as well. Yeah. Well, I'm going to surprise you again, okay. I'm afraid. <laughs> I was, I've been debating whether to ask uh, this, this reflective question about, uh, is there someone in uh, Finnish history or in global history, uh, a diplomat or a uh, president or someone that you feel really embodies the way you look at foreign policy? and, and uh, the way you feel it should be conducted. And I guess now that I've asked the question, I'll have to go forward with it. I was going to ask about nuclear policy, but seeing as this do is... Do both. Well, See, okay. You pick I'll, what you want to answer. Okay, I will do both, because I'm sure we're just about out of time. We're getting close. So what I'll say is this. Is there a person, and why uh, would you choose this person that really you think reflects how you would approach foreign policy and the presidency? And then the other rather <laughs> awkward question one, one thrown into time. that is... One at a time. Um, yeah. Is, 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 is there a nuclear policy for Finland now that you're in NATO and you're sitting in uh, NATO bodies, the HLG and others, where nuclear policy is discussed? Do you go into office with an uh, idea in mind for where you think Finnish nuclear policy might be as you talk to allies and vote on things? So you can answer one or the other or both. It's up to you. Or neither. <laughs> or neither. <laughs> and we can go back to Andrea. Yeah. And if, I, if I start about the former presidents, of course, actually, when you look at former presidents before the Second World War, they were not 
so involved on foreign policy issues. It's surprising because the task of the president is to lead the foreign policy, but, but many domestic issues also needed attention that time. And then, of course, the, during the war, Risto Rutti made a huge career, so to say short, but a huge career by making a special agreement with Germany and then being the victim of that agreement, but probably uh, making a, one of the biggest uh, personal decisions that you can uh, do for your, your country and, 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 and for your security. And then, of course, came the Pasekivi Kekkonen and time and so forth. I have to say that I have been following, of course, now as a foreign minister, President Niinistö's work, and, and uh, I, I'm impressed on some of the moments, for example, when Navalny uh, issue was, was raised up with Putin, directly with Putin, and Navalny was sent then to the Germany and so forth. That just shows that President has, can al also have a hands-on on, on foreign policy issues. On foreign leaders, Kofi Annan has always been my... I was working six years for UN and he was my boss, so to say, and, and, and one of those bosses that make UN really function mm -hmm. and, and being active, so, so I really respect for that. On nuclear policy, I think we have a very clear decision on the our parliament, when we joined uh, NATO, we didn't put any particular reservation. We are part, of course, of the NATO's nuclear umbrella. And then we have our national legislation, which remains untouched at the moment. Well, the question of who I admire, of course, it depends on the times. It is clearly seen that in Finland, during the times of war, there has been courageous leaders like Mannerheim, courage, unity, uh, Ruti that you mentioned, who embodies self-sacrifice for the nation. Uh, President Niinistö, of course, embodies unity, pulling people together. The values are one of, of uh, unity. And the republic itself stands for courage, and I, I think uh, of course, that this time needs more churches than it does need uh, chamberlains. That is clear <laughs> message. I accidentally was watching a Churchill movie yesterday, <laughs> uh, taking care of my, my young son. Uh, and of course, that usually resonates with my soul to see clear sense of purpose and strategic understanding of the situation, unforgiven sense of what is the time that we are living in. And unfortunately, my understanding, how I read the omens, is that we are heading to increasingly disorderly world, yeah. and uh, that cannot be called a world order. It is disorder. And we should be preparing ourselves and also fortifying our neighborhood in order to achieve the best possible outcome and in order to prevent escalations. So that's my peace policy. Look what the Ukrainians are doing. They are soldiering quite a lot of burden. And uh, this sense that we somehow were successful in stopping the escalation, to me it sounds like a moral fallacy. Is it right thing to do? And I don't think it is. The future historians will look this as a weakness, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, on the politician to look up to and then on the nuclear issue, let, let me, I guess, surprise you a little bit. And this is um, a bit of a history lesson, I guess, for our international friends. Please try to find Vaina Tannas memoirs. He was the foreign minister during the Winter War, and I find him to be one of the most astute politicians uh, in Finnish history, the way in which he nav navigated the world of diplomacy. This was in the non-presidential uh, category. And the other one that I would like to mention, it, it's not really a surprise because I've had the privilege to chair his Peace Mediation Foundation for six years, is Martti Ahtisaari. I still think yeah. that he is one of the greatest diplomats in Finnish history and, of course, the only person who has won the Nobel uh, Peace Prize. And if we could just take an iota of his pragmatism from Kosovo or from Northern Ireland, from Namibia, 
or from Aceh, I think this world would be uh, a much better place. I'll refrain from uh, giving out my international uh, idols uh, because there are too many ambassadors around here <laughs> and uh, you might get upset, uh, but there are many. Uh, on the nuclear issue, I'm very much with Pekka. I think our NATO membership should be without limits. Nuclear is a deterrent. It is part of our security umbrella at the moment. And we should be thankful that that umbrella is provided to us directly by the United States, by France, uh, and by the United Kingdom. And we should be thankful that according to public information, uh, it will also be provided from Turkey, Italy, uh, Belgium, uh, and the Netherlands and Germany. Um, therefore, I don't think that we should restrict our nuclear security umbrella uh, in any which way. Thank you. So I think you probably thought you were off the hook, but we have three minutes left. And oh I no. feel a little bit remiss that we haven't talked a little bit more about China. It came up in one or two of sure. your answers. But three minutes, one minute each, kind of what is your view uh, of Finnish relations with China, well, EU relations with China, and kind of what that relationship looks like moving forward? And you only get one minute. Well, there's a Finnish saying that all power is bad, but power that is far away is uh, better than power that is uh, close by. Uh, so China, of course, is an issue. Uh, strategically, we should look into, into that issue. And uh, I think in China, they are now on the crossroad, cr crossroads, thinking about where to go. Economic growth is going down. They have worries. And uh, if they choose the same path that Russia did, around 2010, it shows the path of nationalism, fascism. Uh, if they choose that path to remain solid, uh, that is a danger. And then, uh, then we have a whole new world ahead of us, worrying world. Um, but uh, perhaps it's going to take some time for China to decide. And on the meanwhile, mm -hmm. let's not change the uh, dependency we had on Russian hydrocarbons on a dependency on, on a Chinese monopoly over electricity. Electricity means when it comes to the markets, it means that we are going to use minerals uh, from China, we are going to use solar panels from China. How did that happen? You know, that goes to the question, are we strategically wise enough? And we should look ahead, not think about one year at a time. Um, on China, so <laughs> in Florence I live 500 meters from Santa Croce where Machiavelli is buried. So let me be a little bit Machiavellian on this. Um, I think Europe should play 75% of the time with our closest ally, the United States, hold their hand. But anytime there's talk of decoupling, yeah. I think it's both unrealistic and not sensible. China is not Russia. China is long-term. China is strategic, and we need to cooperate with China in one way or another. And the 25% that we're not with the Americans, be with the Chinese. In other words, be careful of what's going on in China, uh, but be geopolitical and independent. Final point, I wrote a piece in the FT in 2016, the headline of which was, for China, Europe is the new Africa. And my argument was that the way in which China mined raw materials in Africa, it was doing the same thing with tech. That was two weeks before Aikstron uh, hit the fan. So we have to be careful with the Chinese. I don't deny that. But consider them to be there permanently. Consider them to be one of the players. And therefore, do not decouple and isolate. Maybe not decouple, but de-risking? De-risking uh, is language that was used by Jake Sullivan, Janet Yellen uh, and Anthony Blinken almost simultaneously after Ursula von der Leyen had put she that coined text it. Up. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. On these two parts, de-risking or decoupling, I would also choose de-risking. But of course, we saw even during the COVID-19 times that uh, we are depending on China, on the masks, on medicines and so forth. And this is, of course, not helping our security. And we have to be very careful that we produce those issues that we really need in the crisis times. But otherwise, if we take the China-produced things or components away, a lot of this room will disappear from our watches and phones and 
microphones and so forth. We, we have this dependency, but of course it's also dependency of China to the Western market. China wouldn't survive only with uh, Russia as its customer or, or some of the uh, Asian, Asian countries. So definitely de-risking and not decoupling. But when I'm talking to my African friends, for example in Sudan where I worked as a special envoy of European Union, they said that China has a very effective market speech in Sudan. They are telling three issues. If you have any problems with the population growth, we saw that during the 1970s with our population plans, so we can help you to do that. If you have any problems with economic growth during the 1990s, we were said we will not manage. We did that. We have economic growth now in China. If any problems here in Africa on economic growth, we can help you. And now they say China cannot cope with ecological problems, but surprisingly we have the cheapest solar panels, cheapest wind turbines. Please buy them from China. And we have to be better for example, on the African continent. We have to compete on, on that kind of uh, uh, atmosphere, and, and that's a big task for West and for Europe. Well, this was really wonderful. Um, I think Jim and I have remarked on multiple occasions that something like this really would not have been possible in the United States in our <laughs> political environment. <laughs> and so that we have had such a substantive and civil discussion, um, I think is really remarkable and we have enjoyed it thoroughly. So thank you so much for yeah, doing this. Exactly. And thank, thank, you thank you to the Helsinki yeah, Security thank Forum. Thank you. Thank you, Andre. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts, brought to you by the Transatlantic Security Team at the Center for a New American Security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate and review Brussels Sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.